2: beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com
3: Oh, hi. Hello, nerds. Happy end of 2020. The worst year in generations. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am Liv, your supremely nerdy host, here with a fun and fascinating end to 2020. Today's episode, much like last week, is dedicated to a very real person from ancient Greek history who has quite the mythology built around him. Alexander the Great. A quick note, similar with uh, the last episode I released, I've been using something to record conversations and it sucks. I'm not going to use it again, but we just have to deal with it now because I I don't have extensive editing skills. They are primitive, to say the least. So uh, let's all just get past the audio quality and listen to the conversation. I spoke with Meg Finlayson, who is an Alexander expert that I know from Twitter, about the man, the myth, and the movie. Yes, we talked about Oliver Stone's mid-2000s epic, if you want to use that word. This episode doesn't really require you to have watched that movie. It would help. It's three hours long, though, so I wouldn't do that to you. Essentially, we just talked about the history of Alexander, the mythology of Alexander in relation to the movie. So it's fascinating regardless, just all about that man who was such a huge part of ancient Greek history for really such a short amount of time. There is a reason he is called Alexander the Great. Dude has quite the story, quite the mythology, quite the Colin Farrell not even trying to do a reasonable accent. But for real, the movie, if you want to see it or don't, um, definitely has some fine qualities when it comes to historical accuracy and overall filmmaking, but is also hugely problematic. Um, It was made at the same time as Troy and 300, though, so it's in good company. This is episode 106, Alexander the Great, the man, the myth, and the movie.
4: Meg, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about one of my favorite things in the world, which is the Alexander film. Uh, so uh, my name's Meg, I've just completed my MLIT in Classics from the University of St. Andrews. So I've just completed all my master's studies now, um, I'm currently in the process of applying for further education and um, PhDs and things like that, uh, but at the moment I'm sort of like an independent researcher I suppose, <laughs> I kind of do everything um, in my spare time. Uh, a lot of my research interests are in classical reception, um, so in media, film, TV, that kind of thing. Um, And a lot of my research is centered around Alexander the Great, his life, his legacy, and a lot to do with him in reception. And hopefully my future thesis, fingers crossed, will be related to um, Alexander reception in the 20th century, particularly um, queer reception, and so sort of the liminality of his character, particularly in this kind of device of 20th century, where you see a lot of his um, traditional mannerisms start to change in secondary scholarship, and we get kind of the emergence of this this queer figure in Alexander the Great. So that's hopefully the direct direction that I want to head into.
3: That's fascinating. I honestly, like, I, I mean, I I don't have my master's. Notoriously, I just have a BA, so I didn't cover too much. I think that you know when it comes to those those like undergrad classes Alexander is a big part but not I don't even think they had like a whole class on him so I feel like somehow for me he gets kind of lost even though that seems so impossible given how important he was Mm -hmm. to the ancient Greek world so I'm so excited to talk to you about this specifically about the movie too because the movie is so
4: interesting and long (laughs) yeah I I try and talk about it and people just Hear it. it's like everyone's blocked it out, and I'm like, no, please, it's so interesting.
3: I just even seeing your notes on this, I, your, it seems to me that Alexander is your Fellowship of the Ring to me, like the extensive way you know it and can quote it and everything. And I was just feeling that pretty deeply. I was like, oh, this is my Lord of the Rings. Like I get this, I I understand you. <laughs>
4: I just want to note that I didn't take all of the paraphrasing. I didn't remember that off the top of my head. Some of that was like (laughs) copy and paste, (laughs) but I did write (laughs) earlier in the year. I wrote a paper on um, Alexander and particularly like gender and masculinity in the film, and for that I did have to watch it and then go back and write out my own like little transcripts of sections. And oh my gosh! (laughs) Wow.
3: Yeah, that I mean, I, I saw the movie when it first came out, which I think it's
4: like 2005. Well, there's so many versions. I think the original theatrical release is 2004. But then since then, there's been like okay. two or three re-releases. So really? <laughs> yeah, because the original, I think, is a lot shorter. But I think I was a bit mean and requested that we talk about the three and a half hour long version. <laughs> Potentially as recent as 2012, I think, possibly. There's the original theatrical cut, there's a director's cut, and there's an ultimate cut. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they're slightly totally different, but the ultimate cut, three and a half hour, has got all of the stuff that they filmed and edited, whereas the original one's like taken out a lot of things. Wow. Well,
3: I'll admit, I only watched whatever was available on Apple. <laughs> so what, I don't know what version that was, but I watched it. But I did watch it in the theater when it first came out, I think, because I've been a nerd forever um but i'm pretty sure that that's the only time i saw it before just watching it again last week so it was quite it was quite the the thing to watch again when i hadn't i hadn't seen it and it is it is such an interesting take on i think on ancient greece as a whole is kind of what i saw most just because i'm not super familiar with alexander so for me i was just kind of like this is an interesting take on just
4: Greece. It, it comes like right in the middle of this like swords and sandals resurgence. So you have like Gladiator, which was, I don't know, 2001 maybe. Um, and then you have Alexander, which comes out and Troy as well, I think might've come out in the same year or perhaps the year after. And then the year after that, there's 300. So this kind of early noughty, early to mid noughties is where you get all these like really big like blockbuster, like Swords and Sandals, Resurgence films. And they're also interesting to look at with hindsight because they seem so dated. <laughs> now you look back and you're like, wow, that was only 15 years ago. And yet people were still <laughs> making films like this. So it comes at a kind of an interesting point in just that area.
3: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, the timeline of it, because you're right, Troy was also 2004. See, for me, this was like high school. So I, I think that I had it, I think that it just like fed into how much I already loved all of these ancient cultures. Cause 2004, I was like 15, 16. And so like watching it in the theater and then would watch Alexander and Troy. And then I remember exactly when 300 came out, my roommate almost had me name my cat after Leonidas because of how big (laughs) 300 was when it came out. And yeah, I hadn't ever thought of just like that, that whole time period. We did really get so many ancient adaptations.
4: Yeah, they really were just kind of going for what was big at the time. And then I suppose it's really dropped off the radar because in hindsight, nobody likes them anymore. <laughs> I think maybe Gladiator kind of still sticks out as being good. And I will watch Troy forever. And then I will bitch about Achilles
3: and Patroclus being cousins forever.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's they're just so interesting. I love um, like classics, misinformations. I find them so interesting how they get to be there. So even if like the things in Alexander aren't like necessarily correct or it's it strikes me as weird i kind of like to investigate well why did they make that decision because somebody had to make that decision is it just pure misinformation or is it something to do with classical reception and how we kind of consume and edit ancient myth to sort ourselves in in like modernity so that's why i love films that are just weird because i like to try and work out why they are that way
3: i love that i want to talk all about that but first why don't you give us a quick rundown of alexander the great
4: in general
3: historically more so than the movie
4: alexander's interesting because he's this guy that everyone's kind of heard about at least in passing i think maybe i'm biased because that's my whole (laughs) (laughs) niche but i tend to think that most people know the name and kind of think oh he was a greek guy and he conquered the world and he was great and that's a really good foundation because that's kind of what a lot of our sources get at but to put him in a little bit more of a context, I suppose. So he was born in uh, 356 BCE to Philip II of Macedon, who was his father and his mother Olympias of Epirus. So he was born about 100 years after the Persian Wars, about 100 years after the the height of the classical Greek world so at this point Athens and Sparta have kind of been in a period of decline and there really isn't kind of a preeminent eminent um, power in the Greek world except for Macedon which was um, it was really mostly under Alexander's father Philip II who um, brought Macedon into the like the forefront as being the most powerful Greek state at the time, uh, which gets overshadowed a lot by Alexander himself, which a lot of people tend to kind of sideline his father, but a lot of the foundation of what Alexander would go on to achieve. So he's known for his conquest against the Persian empire. That was originally something that was planned by his father, Philip II. Um, A lot of the innovations in the Macedonian army that made Alexander so prolific uh, and so victorious, a lot of those innovations were kind of spearheaded by Philip II. But unfortunately for him, but brilliantly for Alexander, Philip dies, well, he's assassinated, actually, um, when Alexander is 20. And it's at that point that Alexander becomes king of Macedon. It's at that point he um, assumes control over a lot of mainland Greece. And it's at that point he takes on um, Philip's campaign and decides to continue on with this campaign against the Persian Empire. And that is the start of... Alexander the Great, because when he starts, he just can't stop. He starts this campaign against Persia when he's still very young. He's only in his very early 20s. And within 10 years, he has completely defeated the Persian Empire. So he's taken all of those territories. Uh, He's spread into North Africa, into Egypt. Um, And off his own back, he also travels into India, into the um, Indus Valley, and that's the furthest that Greek people had ever travelled before this. They didn't really have much information about that aspect in that area of the world, aside from uh, mythological pre- precedents. So people like um, Dionysus was said to come from the Far East, but Greek people hadn't really travelled that far. So a lot of that is why he is the Great, because he covers this vast area. He's so supremely powerful and prolific in terms of his military career. Famously, Alexander the Great was never defeated in battle. So he has this massive trajectory of going from being a young man, um, you know, but nobody really expected much of him. I don't think as a as a young man coming into the fray. I think there was um, there was some revolts in Greece when he first started his reign because they thought, oh, thank God, you know, Philip II's gone now. Let's get the Macedonians off our backs, and it doesn't work because he kind of exceeds all expectations. And he's at the height of his career, arguably at the age of 32. And he dies very suddenly of a sudden illness. And it's kind of all gone, flash with a bang. And he leaves behind this absolutely amazing legacy that when you read the historical accounts, it reads like something from myth because you think, oh, my gosh, this guy, he's doing all these amazing things, going to all these amazing places, meeting all these strange people. There's no way this could have really happened. And some of it is a bit embellished. So there's a big uh, historical tradition around Alexander where a lot of authors wanted to write about him because he was such a great subject. That was a really good way for them to kind of amplify their own work. So because of that, a lot of the um, more outlandish tales from his his reign probably are a little bit embellished. But the crux of the matter is correct, that he kind of forged these achievements that were really unprecedented for the time. But it all happens quite quickly i think he dies in um babylon in 323 he's just shy of 33 years old um and he doesn't really leave uh, a successful legacy in terms of his lineage he has an unborn son at that time but it really leads to this fragmentation of the greek world because the empire and the greek people are now spread across a larger area than before it can't really sustain itself so this ushers in a whole new era the hellenistic era where we see the rise of kingdoms once again, the the time of the city state is kind of over by this point, and we're now once again ruled by kings in these various chopped up parts of what was Alexander's empire.
3: That is so interesting. I feel like I yeah I I needed that complete rundown of him because the movie really portrays so much of that, which is which is kind of impressive. Of it, it really kind of shows everything, and that sort of my whole basis for knowledge of Alexander right now, embarrassingly enough. I also am obsessively playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is all during the Peloponnesian War. And all I can think about is the the minute you walk into Macedonia, the character just looks around and says,
4: hmm, this will be a great empire one day. I think a funny thing is my friend been playing it and I was like please let me ride around the map to find Macedon and he was like Meg I don't have to go there yet the the quest doesn't start there yet and I was like please so I rode around the map for about 20 real life minutes trying to find
3: Macedon it's so hard to get to Macedon it's so hard and then it's like they're a really high level so you really can't go there until you're really high up but then also it's just like this huge swath of land all the way at the top it's very it was annoying to get to I won't lie it was it was quite trying (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> it was about 20 real life minutes of me sitting on the, on the back of this horse in the game just riding my friend was like can I have it back now and I'm like no I have it no before. you
3: have to get there <laughs> I mean it's such a good game for that for just like obsessing over the visuals of that world like I just want to stare at everything forever I'm like so excited to talk about what you're saying when it comes to the movie and everything too so maybe we'll dive into the movie and then we can go into sort of the myth of Alexander um from there since the movie kind of is a myth in itself um but yeah the so some of the things we were talking about even just before diving into to his history because one of one of the things that really stood out to me watching the movie was this depiction they had of these cave paintings and alexander being told the mythologies so you know they were pretty standard greek myths, you know, prometheus and i don't and medea like you mentioned along with some others. but they went along with these really bizarre cave paintings that didn't remotely resemble anything i've seen when it comes to to greek iconography and then also given the time period, like we're talking pretty late in the greek world, um so to me it was all very primitive for something that is that we're not in a primitive time when it comes to Alexander. Like we're we're post the Peloponnesian War, the Persian War, the height of Athens. Like they are a very um, sort of high level people at this point.
4: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a strange. Um choice i've looked a little bit but not extensively i'm not really an archaeologist at heart but i've looked a bit at the excavations of pella because i think in the last sort of 20 years or so they have excavated the site at pella and vergina which is the kind of heartland of massalia and they found a lot of very interesting um artifacts there are tombs um in pella and vergina there's a famous tomb too i think is the most famous where they kind of um and r ah between whether it belongs to Philip II, like Alexander's actual father, whether it belongs to somebody else. Um, but there's no, like, caves. I remember watching the scene you can hear, like, sort of water dripping faintly. <laughs> and it's really like they're in a grotto. And as far as I know, as far as what I've read, there aren't really any kind of underground caves. And certainly the style that they choose, it almost looks Neolithic in a way. And it it doesn't even resemble sort of archaic or geometric um stylings i think probably a much better choice would have been to make it look like vase paintings because they kind of have that crude or well not really crude because they're still beautiful but i suppose crude compared to what we think of as classical sculpture this will have that kind of rudimentary archaic old look to them if you can imagine like a 5th century vase with the nice scenes on it i think that would have been a better choice but yeah the cave paintings were were quite a fascinating I don't know whether it's an editorial choice or directorial choice. I'm not really a film studies, I'm not good with film studies vernacular, but it was definitely um, interesting to me. And from what I've sort of of read around the film, I don't think anyone quite has an answer for why. (laughs) I think we were just trying to think, huh, that's really weird. Why are we got caveman paintings in, you know, mid-4th century Macedon? Because as you say, it's definitely not a rudimentary um <laughs> or kind of rural well it is it is a rural place, but they certainly are drawing upon the artistic traditions of, you know, Athens at, at its height. That's you know, we're a hundred years gone. They know those styles by now. So it's yeah, so a it's a very strange um addition, I think. Yeah,
3: I felt like they they kind of went with that in a couple of places when it came to Macedon. And so I wasn't totally sure because I'm not so familiar with Macedon, but I mean it is it's not like it's far that far. And I mean, we have even Bronze Age imagery to work off of and sculptures and things that's why I found it so interesting because you can go so much farther back and see what the Greeks were doing in the general region and have an idea and it was not like those cave paintings so what are some other sort of the things that stand out to you in the movie in terms of what you were talking about you know what are some other fun Alexander the person slash the movie slash whatever that uh sort of stand out to you?
4: I think the thing that I, because when I watched it, I tried to watch it with, with as fresh eyes as possible because I think the worst thing you can do when you come into films like this, just as a general rule, is to get too stuck up on historical accuracy because I don't think that's a very productive conversation to have. You know, as I kind of mentioned earlier, my like, methodology, I guess, for things like this is I like to think, okay, but why is it written in that way? Why why are they making these choices? Even if they strike me as being odd, Um, And the thing that I think I took away from from Oliver Stone's vision, that is the bit that I can't really reconcile is that Alexander was so unlikable, but not in a deliberate way. I think I came away from it wishing I could have seen a different film. I think a far more interesting film would have been, okay. take the most, you know, horrid aspects of Oliver Stone's Alexander, of which there are a lot. And actually, like, hone in on those points. I think he could have easily made a film where Alexander is almost the hero of his own story but the villain of everyone else's. I think what I liked about Stone's vision is how you could see from his companions how frustrated they were getting with this never-ending journey. I think the scene that sticks out that makes me kind of Laugh, but also go. Oh, is the one where they're traveling somewhere and they're all bundled up and they've got like frosty eyebrows. And you think, oh my god, these poor Greeks—they <laughs> used to sunshine, suntan oil, and here they are in like the frosty mountains. Oh my god, you monster, Alexander! Let them go home. and that's what kind of stuck in my thought but that's quite an interesting angle and I think Stone kind of touched upon it because you got to see his men arguing with him and you got to see the poor frozen Macedonians with their frostbitten toes and fingers but it kind of never it never gave you enough to justify why that was either okay or why it was completely bad I think it the problem and the attraction, I think, of Alexander, whether that's in film or history or anything, is that he's such a divisive car- character. You can never decide whether he's good or bad. He's always fluctuating between these two para- like poles of, oh, well, he's good because he had this enlightened vision and he just wanted to unite the world under one like common education, which, I mean, is very questionable, but that's kind of the one side. And you have the other side of, oh, he was just a terrible, you know, dictator bloodthirsty you know glory hunting terrible person and he's always kind of fluctuating in between and i think perhaps that what stuck with me about stones alexander is i couldn't quite decide or work out where stone was trying to pitch him between these different sides because on the one hand he's he's very romantic with a capital r he's always got these big ideas and these big grand gestures which i think plays into part of how stone uses the idea of prometheus but then he's also got this terrible temper murders people is having fights with his friends left right and center and i found it interesting how it never it never kind of settled between those two so i I mean i wonder what 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 did you think of alexander's character in this film like how did he come across to you was he like a hero of his own story or the villain of everyone else's i think it's
3: similar to what what you were just saying is that it's, it almost seems like you're not supposed to know or nobody in doing the movie decided because he really is sort of everything all at once. And I think what this movie did too much of was try to be everything. It, it, it tried to retell every moment of Alexander's story. And then as a result um, sort of came across as just like too much of everything. And so I think that's sort of true of his character too, where I think at the beginning you you kind of try to feel for him. You sort of see the relationship with his mother, which we also definitely want to talk about. Um, and so to anyone who hasn't hasn't watched this movie too, his mother, um, well, Alexander is played by Colin Farrell in, a, in an interesting role. And then his mother is uh Angelina Jolie in a very Angelina Jolie type role. Um but I think you kind of feel for him at the beginning there, but then he sort of just spirals and becomes sort of just over the top but yeah it's very difficult to to determine how you're supposed to feel about him because he is just so much
4: yeah he's just he's just everything i but I think that you can you can have a story of a character where they start off, you know, perhaps young and naive. I think that the early Alexander in Oliver Stone's film is supposed to be young and naive. You can certainly start off at that point and have you believe and root for them, but then it turns out they spiral out of control and by the end of it you just feel kind of pity or disappointed or disgust. I think you can have a story that tells that tale but I don't think Stone's story quite managed it because even at the end we're kind of he's still having his long rambling speeches to you know poor poor Hephaestion vis-a-vis Jared Leto who <laughs> is just I think just he just feels his his character is so it's not even a character when I was re-watching it. I just thought, my God, he's just there to have bit like big blue eyes and just for Alexander to bounce his monologues off. That's all he does. He practically speaks in third person he never really say, he never speaks to him on a human level, which is I think another one, one of the drawbacks of the film <laughs> is that there, there is no character of of Hephaestan. he literally is just there for Alexander to bounce these ideas off. Um, but I think that he, by, by the end, he had. We still haven't got like this definitive. Oh, he's lost his marbles. He's kind of spiraled because he still is clutching onto this dream. So I think that I don't. Know, I don't think. I think you can. I think something would have had to have been cut away because there is so much to the Alexander story. That's part and parcel of what it is to study Alexander. Is there's always going to be conflicting reports because there's just so much written about him. But I think you have to make a decision to cut something. You have to to choose what you're going to do with him. And I think, as you said, they just put everything in which is why it's a three and a half hours long <laughs> and B no one ever wants to talk about it it doesn't make for as you know as as cohesive of a film experience as I think a lot of people wanted from it
3: you could have definitely had a couple fewer battles and just made the point that yes he won a lot of battles we didn't have to see them all um but I think that's really true about hefeiston and he is so important um but You're right. It's sort of Jared Leto's just kind of there to be there looking very it's one of his more Jared Leto-esque roles.
4: When I researched this film before, one of the things I looked at was like gender and and sort of masculinity. And the costuming is so intricate and detailed because if you watch it, you can see like Hephaestion's face is gradually getting more and more beaten up. As time goes on, you can kind of see he has like these little additional scars put in and you're like, oh, so they're paying attention to the fact that these guys are battling and taking on damage and stuff. But he just never really is is fleshed out as a as a human being. It's like, oh, they had so many so much detail, but kind of in the wrong places.
3: Yeah, that's really true.
2: Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
3: So let's talk about Hephaestan in general and Alexander because, of course, in the movie, and I think also in reality, they were sort of in a relationship but couldn't officially be in a relationship because of, you know, various patriarchal norms and the like. And Alexander needed an heir and he needed a wife and et cetera, et cetera. But Hefeisen is interesting in the movie because it's sort of it's it's supposed to show that they were very much in love and Alexander was devoted to him. But also, like you say... Hephaestion doesn't have so much of a character as he is just kind of like a sounding board throughout.
4: Yeah, and I think that's, I think it's a shame that that's the direction they went because I think you could do a lot potentially with this relationship because there's a lot of space to do a lot of things because this is the guy who, you know, historically was, they grew up together, you know, whether they continue being lovers into adulthood is something you can't always. Um, ascertain, but I think it's a bit erroneous at this point to say, well, you know, maybe they were just friends because it's kind of, that's kind of like, well, it's not really (laughs) the point. They were definitely doing something. And even if not, like, they were at least the closest people to each other within this camp for the longest of times. And I think that's a really interesting relationship. You could have done a lot in there. They could have had frank conversations. He could have been the only person to say, look, Alexander, you're killing everyone out there. This is a bad thing. If that was the angle they wanted to go which maybe Hephaestion didn't say because, you know, historically Hephaestion was a bit of a yes man and that, that was his role. He was there to be, you know, Alexander's second in command, his closest companion. He was there to be, I think they they were brother-in-law at some point because during the mass marriages, Alexander took on three wives in his lifetime, they, but he marries two other Persian women, one of which his sister marries Hephaestion. So at some point they become you know, family, which I think they do touch upon in the film, because as, as he's dying, he says something about their children playing together, growing up together, something like that. But it was a very interesting dynamic that they could have explored more with. But I think the dynamic that they really hammered home was this Achilles, Patroclus, Alexander Hephaestion paradigm. That was something that I think was quite important to the film which they say very explicitly you know I think um, one of their many romantic balcony chats they're always having talks on this balcony (laughs) and all the scenes kind of merge together in my head I think they must do it at least three separate times but I just can't separate them because it's all the same kind of thing the stands there looks very doe-eyed Alexander goes on a grand monologue but you know, at some point, he does say, you know, like, "Oh, if if you're if you're Achilles, then that means I'm Patroclus, and that means I'm going to die." And Alexander's like, "I wouldn't let that happen because I love you." And it's all very like, "Oh, okay, we're doing this." <laughs> so they re- they really do make a point of making it explicit that they are, you know, they are going for this um, Achilles um, Patroclus paradigm, which is not. I mean, that's a very accepted thing I think in a lot of scholarship and a lot of secondary literature that the two of them associated their relationship with um, Achilles and Patroclus in, in historical events got surrounding, we know that um, Alexander journeyed to the ancient site of Troy while he was on this campaign and that he and Patroclus made um, sacrifices in honour of Achilles sorry, he and Aphaestion, my goodness <laughs> 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 made sacrifices and they you know, ran a naked foot race and stuff and things like that Um, And we know that when um, Hephaestion died, Alexander put on this great display of mourning. He was like sobbing for like three days and like cut off all of his hair and had like commissioned this massive funeral pyre that would have cost, I think I I remember reading the uh, sort of approximate evaluation and it was like in the billions that it would have been. He was going to like blow the whole treasury on this (laughs) in a way that a lot of later authors who were writing this all up Directly identified with Achilles's, you know, over exaggerated mourning of Patroclus. So we can kind of guess that within their own lifetimes, they were consciously making this decision to associate themselves with Achilles and Patroclus. And whether that was just kind of a private romantic thing <laughs> or whether it served like a greater propagandic purpose, it's, you know, maybe six of one, half a dozen of the other. So that's one of the things that Stone puts into this film throughout. That you can kind of see, oh, no, I'm 100% on board with that. I get why they're doing this. This makes complete sense. And it's a very um, deliberate invocation of the myth that is very consistent with sort of what I think most people who know about Alexander know, that, oh, well, Alexander loved wanted to be like Achilles. He also loved Hephaestion, and they were like, you know, best buddies. It makes It makes sense, but it's an interesting one, how it's invoked sort of in childhood. I find this scene um where they're training with aristotle yeah they're training they're, t- they're talking with aristotle and they're talking about kind of very grandiose ideas for whatever they're supposed to be like 11 12 year old boys about conquering and about heroes and things like that and they bring up the um, achilles and patroclus and he was saying oh you know oh well didn't he do all those things because he was motivated motivated by his love for, for patroclus so it's a point that's kind of brought up in childhood and then revisited in adulthood so it's kind of one of the cons- more consistent i think <laughs> parts of the film and it, and its use of greek myth
3: i think that's a it's fascinating in contradiction to the fact that troy came out in the same year too because the idea that they came both came out in the same year and alexander was so um obsessed with that idea of achilles and patroclus which like you say is pretty accurate um and then that troy came out at the same time and was like they're cousins Achilles loves women is a very interesting to have the two movies out at the same time and have these two very different ideas of Achilles and Patroclus.
4: Yeah, I need to, something that I want to do, but I haven't had the time and or kind of mental sturdiness to do is I really am curious to watch the original theatrical release of Alexander and then watch the longest version, because I know that when the original release came out in theatres, they had quite a bit of backlash from Greek people because they didn't like the fact that there was this very romantic, you know, situation going on between between alexander and feistian there was if you kind of google search it you'll get up like sort of the old news articles about greek lawyers threatening to sue warner brothers or whoever it was who distributed the film because of this you think you know 2004 was a very different time back then (laughs) in terms of you know people's attitudes towards this and then the re-release which came out i think i I think it's 2012 i'm gonna stick with that because i know it's in that area that put back in a lot of the material that was taken out. And a lot of the material that was taken out was to do with some of the more homoerotic elements. So because Alexander has a relationship with um, Hephaestion, but he also has this relationship with the Persian eunuch as well. And they have a full on sex scene in the long version, in the three and a half hour version. And that was completely cut out of the the original release. So I would definitely be interested to go back and see how much of the Alexandra and content is watered down in the original. Because I know there was some of it that was kind of taken out, but it must have still been there in some capacity for people to be angry about it. But it is interesting that they went in those two very different directions is that Troy was like, you know what, we're not going <laughs> to, we're not doing this. We're going to completely ignore this aspect and just elide it totally. Whereas Alexander was like, no, this is going to be a fairly key component of Alexander's interpersonal relationships. I think the main relationships really are with, his his mother, which we're gonna have to come to because it's absolutely fascinating and/or horrifying, and it really is. If I what they have the most conversations with each other, so I think it will be an interesting exercise to kind of. But that would involve watching it for like six hours straight, and I don't, I don't <laughs> think don't think I can handle Colin uh, Farrell for that long.
3: Oh no, I yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't. Um, I think I remember it being pretty subtle though in the original one where it definitely wasn't explicit because like you say like 2004 was a a very different time. Um, I remember I don't know I'm trying to think back because I definitely saw it in the theater but I'm remembering it sort of more of a um, yeah I think it was more implied but it was a lot less explicit.
4: Yeah whereas the, the longer version is kind of like no they're absolutely... I think I don't. I don't think they kiss. I know he kisses the the eunuch in the long version. I don't think him and Feisachin kiss, but they definitely do a lot of um, wistful gazes. And what I found so interesting, which is such a Christianizing aspect of it, is they is that Hephaestion comes to Alexander on his marriage night and gives him a ring. <laughs> I was, And I found that so uh, interesting. I was like, wow, like, <laughs> that's quite... It's a very Christianizing element because, of course, rings in antiquity didn't mean marriage, and obviously not between two men. The idea of marriage between two men is completely absurd when you put it in ancient Greek context. It, it would never exist but I think definitely if you're, you're putting it towards a modern you know western English speaking audience predominantly so to have the you know I guess I guess you would call them love interests or at least intimate companion come to you on your wedding night to somebody else but still at a wedding night and give you a ring I thought was a very interesting choice
3: <laughs> it definitely was and it's presented it's just a very awkward scene in general I would say like it's yeah you can see the, the intention with what they're doing there but it's it was an odd one. I wasn't expecting
4: that for sure. <laughs> it's a very interesting symbol, the ring, because he kind of keeps it with him for the whole film. And as he's dying, he's kind of holding up the ring to, there's like that, that weird scene with the CGI eagle that is kind of almost as if it's Zeus coming to collect him for the afterlife. Cause he's, you know, sweating, he's fevered, he's dying and the ring smashes. And it's kind of, this ring almost symbolizes a lot of his hopes and his ideas for empire that are destroyed that smash upon his deathbed. But then interestingly, I think this is definitely in the long cut and not in the shortcut. When they come back to Ptolemy at the end, because obviously the, the narrator of the film is is old Ptolemy, we, we find out. When you look at him, he's wearing the ring just with the, the gemstone smashed. And I think it, it made almost an interesting comment. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but what I took away from it was that ring really kind of symbolised Alexander's hopes for His empire, because that's all him and Hephaestion seem to talk about, is how much he wants to build this empire with him. It's almost going to be their legacy. And obviously, the gem is missing; the heart of it's missing. But you know, the fragments of the empire remains. And Ptolemy was arguably the most successful of all of the successor generals. So I found it very interesting that that almost that is almost continued and it's been picked up by him. I was like, wow, there's a lot. I could write a whole essay on this one (laughs) piece of jewelry alone. No, that's very true. I feel like
3: that that must sort of be the purpose there. Um, especially because, like you say, I mean, the Ptolemies were definitely the most. I mean, they're the 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 successor general that I know of, certainly, and then the the generations and generations of them that that ruled Egypt in that way. So Angelina Jolie, let's let's talk Alexander's mother and Angelina Jolie because it's quite quite the opinion of of his mother they're putting forth in this movie so i'm so curious what your thought your thoughts are on her in the movie but also her historically
4: i think her depiction in the movie is awful (laughs) just because it's such a i I hoped so (laughs) it is just awful i think the accent is terrible and i feel bad because i (laughs) Genuinely, Angelina Jolie is an actress. I think she's quite a talented actress. I thought she was English for the longest of times because of her voice in um, Tomb Raider. I think it's such a convincing English accent. So I've got nothing wrong, there's nothing about Angelina Jolie that I particularly dislike, but she is very bad in this film. And I don't know if that's because the direction that she was given, I can't comment on that. (laughs) But um, I mean... On the one hand, it is kind of true to what I guess, the historical Olympias as she is recorded, because a lot of the information that we have about Olympias, her most kind of divisive portrayal comes from Plutarch, who was a, Greek writer and his he did a lot of um, character pieces for a lot of figures from antiquity. He wrote about Alexander. He wrote about Julius Caesar. Most notable Greeks and Romans will have a biography written by Plutarch. And his whole thing is that he's a biographer, not a historian. He's kind of there to capture their character more than he is to write down what literally happened. So a lot of his um, pieces are very good; they're very interesting to read, but you need to take them with like a whole like mammoth heap of salt. But he writes Olympia as being kind of uh, almost a caricature of like a dangerous woman. You know, she's into the cult of Dionysus; she slept with snakes. You know, maybe maybe Zeus is the father of Alexander because she was she slept with snakes, and maybe the animal when you know impregnated her, and that's why Alexander was you know so godlike in his abilities. And you know, she's this kind of ruthless woman and she's a mysterious woman um so that is kind of true of i guess a lot of what the ancient authors were writing about her but then again that's standard for a lot of ancient authors writing about women i thought it was interesting that they brought up medea in the cave scene i think the cave scene we're gonna have to come back to because it introduces five key myths they mention achilles they mention heracles they mention medea they mention oedipus (laughs) And they mention um, Prometheus. So I think the bringing up Medea was kind of interesting because I think that's the character that she was almost going for. I think part of the film that struck me as being the most strange was Olympias and her relationship with Alexander's father. Because we know they don't get along. I think, I can't remember the chronology because it's so butchered. But, you know, early on when you see them, you know, Philip's about to assault her in a drunken rage and that Alexander kind of is there and is a bystander and, and stops him by being there. And also her snakes are there and that stops him as well. So it's a very strange, quite disturbing scene. Um, and th- I think it's it's kind of implied throughout um, because if you're watching it not knowing what happened, I can't remember when Philip's assassination, sorry, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> comes into it. Because again, the <laughs> chronology is more, is, in chronological order, but it's kind of throughout the film, there's almost this Did she, didn't she, did Alexander, didn't hate There's this Did she, didn't she, did Olympias murder Philip? Because what we get from it is that she hates him, you know, her son's going to avenge her. She like screams something to that effect at him, and she's like, You know, my son's going to come and get you if you, you know, keep being horrible to me. But there's also, there's, but it's, it's a bit more complicated than that because she doesn't just hate him. There's also this element of sexual jealousy, which is so anachronistic because Philip married, I think it's something like six or seven times. I can't quite remember. He had multiple wives. It was sort of polygamy and diplomacy in a sense. So he married Olympias because she was from Epirus, and they wanted to have some kind of alliance, some kind of connection there. And I think Olympias was not even his first wife, if, I'm, if if I recall correctly. So this idea, I think, I can't remember verbatim the exchange, but it's something about Alexander being like, "Oh, you, you know, you hated my father. You, you know, you're glad he's dead." She's like, "Oh, I didn't hate him. I, I loved him." And you're like, "What?" <laughs> what (laughs) because she spent the whole film saying you know he's horrible i hate him she wears like scarlet red and she glowers at him as he's being murdered and that's such a visual (laughs) clue you're like i bet she killed him and there's bits where you know um Alexander quarrels with Philip, which historically did happen. Alexander and Philip had a little bit of a tempestuous relationship. There's a there's an incident where they did quarrel upon Philip's marriage to another younger woman where he thought he was being insulted. So they had a fight and he had to flee Macedon for a while. But then he came back and they were seemingly all best friends by the time he was assassinated. So there is kind of that historical precedent for them not having this great relationship. But the idea that Olympias would exert this kind of sexual jealousy because Philip's marrying a younger woman or this idea that she was you know in love with him and it's kind of all mo- her anger's motivated by a kind of spurned romance is very much something that is like t- for the modern audience because this idea of sexual jealousy is just not compatible with the polygamous marriages that would have happened in the Macedonian court it wasn't unusual for Macedonian kings to have more than one wife so it's very very odd but i mean angelina jolie plays it very well it's a bit it's a bit too no and it's very two dimensional but she does kind of the the one dimensional scheming sexually jealous woman brilliantly <laughs> but it is i mean her costuming is fantastic i remember reading somewhere that they wanted to do a more historically accurate costume with like sort of a veil type thing not like a full face veil but kind of like an over the head more like a keton type thing and angelina jolie went nope <laughs> I want to look fab so that's what kind of like the blood red one-shouldered gold everything she looks amazing but it's all very odd
3: (laughs) that's interesting to know yeah that there that polygamy was so widespread there because it certainly suggests that their take on her as a character is based in a more modern misogyny then because she really is She's really depicted as quite an evil woman and, and very much those sort of typical stereotypes of a jealous woman in, in sort of an, an over-the-top and, and gross kind of way. So the idea that that's all very much modern is not surprising, <laughs> but I would say disappointing. But she definitely does do it well. And the snakes, the way they incorporate the snakes is disturbing and very well done i'm not a snake person so i think i'll inherently find it disturbing but it's very well done
4: yeah i th- I think it's so interesting and i I hope we come to alexander's marriage to roxanne because it's so it's all part of this oedipal theme that stone really i don't know if he introduces it because obviously the, 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 there is sort of evidence of alexander's strange relationship with his parents but i've never seen it to be so strong in anything that i've read before as it is in this film this kind of oedipal overtone of Alexander's strange relationship with his mother. And again, something I've read that has never been confirmed, but it was a rumour is that Angelina Jolie and Colin Farrell were like together at the time. They were like secretly dating or at least hitting it off and, you know, sneaking off on set while filming Alexander. So that might might explain some of the weird chemistry. (laughs) I don't know, but it's definitely odd but when when you meet Roxanne who he marries who's played by Rosario Dawson and again a very one-dimensional just sort of barbarian woman character they sort of at one point there's like a zoom in on her arm and she's wearing like a snake bracelet and I think everyone's kind of alarm bells went off like oh my god snakes just like his mother everyone's like sort of screaming like ah, like I really are supposed to be each other's equal in a sense he's almost he's he's almost married his mother not literally like Oedipus but he's married what is essentially his mother because it's the same one-dimensional character it's the same you know sexually jealous um barbarian princess type because Roxanne is for some reason sexually jealous of Hephaestion which is absolutely bizarre which is absolutely for the for the modern audience there's no (laughs) you know there's no way that that would have been something of any concern, I think, in antiquity, because there's no way that Hephaestion could have occupied any kind of position, because he could never be Alexander's wife. He could never be the parent to Alexander's heirs. So that's a very interesting and odd angle: is is Roxanne's sexual jealousy over Hephaestion and after his death, Hephaestion's death. I think Alexander goes and he accuses her of murdering him, and it's it's a very weird scene because he, it's that's definitely something that is sort of in, mostly for the modern audience, because there's no reason why. Um, the historical Roxanne would have had any sexual jealousy for him, over Hephaestion at all so it kind of almost is a parallel to his mother and, and his father and her sexual jealousy so it's a very odd take that is must be invented for the modern audience but I don't know if it adds anything I I don't really think if it makes the film more enjoyable if anything it just makes it a bit weird
3: it makes it more obviously anti-woman too like those are the two really the only two women in the movie and they are both meant to be really unlikable characters
4: yeah she's just I mean yeah Olympias is and the thing that I like about it well not like but that kind of made me giggle darkly is I think when Philip is assassinated there's kind of blood everyone's screaming crying and obviously he's just married the young Eurydice and they have a little baby is um Angelina Jolie's Olympias gives her this really nasty side eye and in in the history uh Olympias had his new wife and baby murdered supposedly so it's kind of like if you know what's coming <laughs>
3: yeah that's a fun additional detail so all the um Oedipal talk there I think we should we should dive into the other the other myths that are brought up in the weird cave painting scene so like you said they they definitely wanted to include these Oedipal, um overtones when it came to his mother and his wife which was an interesting decision um, but then I mean the Medea I find interesting what do you think the intention was in in referencing Medea?
4: I think a lot of it is is just to um, give this dark character to um, Olympias because Philip goes on this very much misogynist anti-woman rant where he's like, you can't try, I can't do an Irish accent. I think it'd be really funny if I could, but it really is, you know, giving it to Alexander saying, you know, you can't trust women. We spend all of our lives, you know, running away from our mothers. And, you know, <laughs> women make slaves of us is the, the quotes that like come to, come to mind. And Alexander's just like, my mom wouldn't hurt me. <laughs> Cause Philip's telling him about Medea who murdered her, you know, famously murdered her children to, to get back at Jason is, is often the way that that's, that's interpreted. So, you know, Philip's telling him and Alexander's a bit like, my mother wouldn't hurt me. <laughs> so it's a, very, it's a very interesting thing to bring up, but I just think it's part of this wider, I guess, the, the film is very misogynist because it is just, there are practically no women in it. The women that are in it are, you know, one-dimensional caricatures of, you know, barbarian, sexy princess lady, but she's also very sexually <laughs> jealous and aggressive. So it was an interesting one to bring up because again Medea and Alexandra I don't think you'd uh, see together in in many other contexts. So it's certainly an interesting parallel because I mean in the in the um in the myth of Medea I think I I'm most familiar with Euripides' Medea but she is also a barbarian woman made wife because she's not from, you know, mainland Greece she's from the furthest reaches from she's from Colchis which is the end of the world. So when she's brought into Jason's life you know, falls in love with him, marries him. But I suppose it's, it's a civil marriage, I guess you would call it, because then Jason's like, actually, I want a proper marriage now to a proper nice mm-hmm. It's You could almost say that that is what we're trying to get at with, um, with Olympias, that she's from Epirus. She's not actually from Macedon. So when Philip marries a young girl from Macedon, you know, their children are going to be pure Macedonian. They're going to be of a higher standing. So I guess it's trying to make that Olympias and Medea – parallel but again I mean Olympias had no reason to kill her children to get back at her husband but it's certainly an interesting thing that this this idea of the barbarian woman in the Alexander film is I think something that could be explored a bit more I wish it could be but it's difficult because where do you go with it because they are so two-dimensional well one-dimensional they don't really do anything but it is, it's an interesting myth to bring in and it almost makes me think maybe maybe oliver stone is aware of this stereotype maybe that's why he's doing it but does it excuse it probably not yeah i mean yeah to to make the connection
3: with his mother to both medea and jocasta is like you really don't think very highly of these women in the movie do you like to to make those two connections that are that are not explicit in the story and are definitely made made for the movie and then to have that just be well that's the women that's
4: all of them. I mean, you know, Alexander history is there's not a huge amount of women to talk about on his campaign. It is just kind of him and his boys and then him and his boys and their wives and their lovers. Um, there's not really a lot you can say, I suppose, for, about the women in, in Alexander's life. But, you know, Olympias outside of, um, you know, after Alexander's death, Olympias took in Roxanne and and the, his then son was born Alexander IV. And they did. Fi- I, I'm not ve- so well-versed on the um, wars of the successors, but Olympias did have a contingent of people to try and defend Macedon from people who were trying to become the new regent. So she had a little bit of a military career herself. And that's definitely one of the projects that I want to look at in the future is looking a bit more into the historic Olympias because she seems to have done some quite powerful things. But again, in, in the Greek mind, that that's a bad, dangerous woman because she does powerful things. She acts like a man. So it's definitely hard to... I guess, separate what is just pure ancient Greek misogyny and what is modern misogyny inserted into the film. But I think that this sexual jealousy angle, the Oedipal element is something that is modern misogyny inserted into the film, because that's certainly not something that is apparent in in the ancient sources, is this kind of Oedipal, Medea aspect, because there's no reason why she would necessarily have to fear being a barbarian woman. That is what the conflict was with alexander and his father when they had a fight just after his father's most recent marriage um he in he took on himself the conversation that was happening and he felt that he was being insulted because there was a wish that um his father's new marriage would would produce legitimate children and he took that as an insult but uh, you know some scholarship that i've read reviewing this incident said well that's not really an it sounds odd now but that's not an, an unusual toast at a wedding you know, may, may you have nice, legitimate children with your new wife. Doesn't necessarily mean that your previous children with your other lovely wives are illegitimate. Just that's what we're toasting to now. But Alexander, being the very sensitive soul that he is, <laughs> took it personally and threw a cup at someone's head, and it started a fight. So
3: <laughs> Alexander, yeah, he's a he's quite a character. It sounds like just historically and in the movie. Um, so what about some of the other the myths that are that are referenced? uh in that, that cave scene with Prometheus and Heracles, and of course we've we've talked all about Achilles.
4: The Heracles one is definitely uh an interesting one. I think it's probably the one that has the most historical basis. Um so Heracles is a figure. He's this he's one of the great Greek heroes. He's probably one of the most um widely celebrated Greek heroes because he has relevance to a lot of areas of Greece. Because Greece is divided up into so many different sections, they all kind of have deities and heroes that have different significance but Heracles is very widely appreciated um, but he's particularly appreciated in Macedon because the Macedonian kings draw their lineage from Heracles when you go way way back that's kind of the the, the yarn that they spin is that you know we're descended from Heracles especially the Argia dynasty which is Alexander his father and his forebearers so Heracles crops up a fair few times in terms of um, sort of ancient Macedon Uh, in terms of their sort of royal image. So there's numismatic evidence. So coinage that was produced by Philip II and his predecessors um, would have sometimes utilised the portrait of Heracles. So um, normally his very iconic lion skin cap, that's how you normally be like, ah, yeah, that's Heracles, or his club. Um, And by putting on their coins, they're kind of just saying, you know, we are, we're the kings we're descended from Heracles. He's a Greek hero. He's really cool. That means that we are also really strong and cool. And it's just this typical, you know, making allusions to historical or mythological figures to kind of add more importance to yourself in the present, because everybody recognizes these cultural signifiers. If you see a coin and you see, oh, this is for Philip II of Macedon, oh, it's got Heracles on it. I bet he's a guy you don't want to mess with. It's probably a bit of a sort of reduction of, of it, but that's essentially what it what it is. I think propaganda is a bit of a anachronistic term, but it's sort of along those lines. It's sort of a constructed royal image. So Heracles features a lot in that. So we have that background for Alexander being born and becoming king in his own right. Um, but Heracles is important as a figure of massive achievement. You know, the twelve labors out of all the her- of all the heroes, Heracles probably does the most. So that kind of seems to form this um, figure for emulation for Alexander. He wants to emulate the greatness of Heracles by doing lots of things, by achieving lots of things, and there's definitely um, moments in his campaign where he seems to be going places and pushing the envelope too far just because he wants to outdo these mythological predecessors. So an example that um, I think of is um, when he was uh, on campaign uh, near India and sieging and this place at Aeornos. And Aeornos Rock um, was supposedly very, very difficult to siege. Supposedly Heracles had tried in his lifetime and he had failed to do so. So when writing this incident in their histories, um, writers like Arian, writers like Plutarch make a point to deliberately say you know alexander was really keen on this siege because he wanted to outdo heracles heracles was his immediate predecessor he was his ancestor through blood literally but he's also his ancestor in terms of greatness he wants to surpass him to to be the best he's got you know he's very much a type a personality so the myth of heracles is is invoked several times in the literature surrounding alexander and also several times in his image Supposedly towards the end of his life, when Alexander was getting a little bit big for his boots, there's some suggestions from fragments of history that he would dress up as Heracles for hunting trips and he would wear an imitation lion skin cap. (laughs) Um, There's a very um, beautiful image on the so-called Alexander sarcophagus, which I've researched and written about. I think it's absolutely amazing. And one of the figures on the sarcophagus, it's not Alexander himself who's in the sarcophagus. It belongs to somebody else, a, a client king in Sidon who knew Alexander. But the reason why it's called the so-called Alexander sarcophagus is because on one of the panels, which is a beautiful um, fight scene, you have a figure that everybody says, my gosh, this must be Alexander because the figure is wearing a Heracles' lion skin cap. And it's just amazing that he would be so brazenly wearing these attributes of, of heroes and that that attribute of a hero is now used to identify Alexander because he's associating himself so closely with it um, but stone doesn't seem to do much with Heracles in the film he doesn't really seem to appear we never really see Alexander dressed up as Heracles no if, if not that I can recall anyway I think that would have been quite a fun little bit for the costume department um, but he's brought up as an example of suffering
3: and the Prometheus of him I I think I I would interpret that to sort of be the, that obsession with of you know bringing the the Macedonian Greek world to everyone else.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think now we we call a spade a spade. It, you know, it's colonization. It's, it's imperial. It might lack kind of the the racial overtones of kind of later empires when we think of because race and antiquity is a very different, um, very different ballpark. But it is it is colonialism. It is imperialism. But there is this idea that was sort of perpetuated around Alexander history, particularly of the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, I think it's dubbed the Brotherhood of Mankind theory, which is um, a scholar called W.W. W. Tarn, who was really the biggest proponent of this, this very romantic notion that Alexander only did these conquests and only went on these battles and killed all these people because he wanted to unite mankind under an enlightened philosophy, under you know Greek education, Greek art, all of this was seen as being enlightened and better, and that he only really had good intentions. He just wanted to unite everybody, and that you know a theory which now can kind of you look at it and go, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> I I tend to think of it as you know the, the dissemination of Greek culture is more of a natural byproduct of invasion than it is a motivator. I think kind of retroactively you look at it and think, oh, you know maybe he went there to spread Greek culture. But it's far more likely that Greek culture spread because he went there. So you just kind of. Flip it the other way around
3: well also i think that's an argument that that could be used to to defend almost all instances of like the worst colonialization and imperialism that we've had in history is like i mean you can say the same thing for north america well they just wanted to spread christianity it was they had good intentions and it's like well that doesn't count (laughs) you don't get to use that as as an excuse for what you've done kind of thing so yeah it's an interesting an interesting argument there but i think that just even using prometheus in general for that is is fascinating of of likening yourself to to the god who gave humans sort of everything they needed to survive it's very i mean it's it's all about that ego is that something that that alexander used historically
4: prometheus or is it is that more of a just in the movie? I've certainly never, uh, never come across anything of Alexander likening himself to Prometheus. Alexander did make use of historical precedents and mythological motivators. You know, he he acknowledges Achilles, he acknowledges Heracles, he acknowledges Dionysus as well, and other people attribute those three to him. But those are really the main three figures. Like Oedipus, that are never brought together with Alexander. But Stone has done that for the purposes of the film, and definitely figures like Prometheus are never really brought together with Alexander I think it's because Prometheus in our modern understanding has also has almost become synonymous with somebody who's innovative if you're innovative and you want to do something outside the box you're kind of considered to be a Prometheus so I think that's the meaning that it's taken on for us that maybe Stone is has in mind when he's making these comparisons because I think Stone's Alexander his fire that he wants to give people is not very well fleshed out, but it kind of is freedom, which is a very, you know, Americanized mm. <laughs> way. But, you know, there's mm-hmm. conversations having where he says, you know, I've come. To- Free people have come to free slaves, which is absolutely bizarre because Alexander had no interest in freeing slaves. Why would he do that? Greece was a slave-based society. Persia was a slave-based society. Persians weren't barbarians in the Greek imagination because they kept slaves <laughs> because the Greeks did that too. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there's this line of I can't remember where it is, but it's some it's it's one of his monologues or not monologue one one, one one of his conversations with the Bible, where he's just bouncing off these grand ideas and he, they, they mention something about freeing slaves. That's what they want to do. They want to to, you know and he says something he's very much a Prometheus I think in the fact that he feels like he's not appreciated mm-hmm. he's very much an <laughs> underappreciated genius because he says you know these people don't hear it but I want them to be free I want them to read I want them to write and that's such a a direct, I think that is where like the American yes. aspect comes through this idea that freedom literacy these are all the grand this is the fire that you know Promethean Alexander's going to give people when in reality he was never going to free populations N- nobody would do that of course he's going to have lots and lots of slaves because he's an ancient he's living in ancient Greece that's they had a slave-based society that was their economic powerhouse he's got no interest in doing that and you know reading and writing and, and freeing the populations he's got no interest in any of that that's very much where the American aspect of this comes from and I think that's what the Promethean thing is it's kind of the American dream of freedom and literacy and and that kind of thing. So that's very much a modern insert, I think, for the purposes of the film. But I think it is interesting that they've hung that hat on Prometheus because it's a very interesting myth to invoke here for these purposes. But I think it, it does it fairly does it fairly well in that it makes sense. Like, oh, well, he considers himself a Prometheus because he's bringing something to people who are lesser than he is. He considers himself kind of above them all. And yet it's not appreciated. You know, mm-hmm. people are not saying, you know, retire, he's he's going to be punished for it, basically. And I guess his punishment in a sense is he never gets to see these things through. He has his early death. And if, you know, the twist at the end of the film, which took me by surprise, the first time I saw it was was old Ptolemy recounting at the end goes yeah we killed him and i was like oh my gosh (laughs) so the idea that at the very end (laughs) old ptolemy and the successors he's like yeah we killed him because he was going too far and dreamers are terrible because dreamers kill everyone around them and then they kill themselves because you know you can't be a dreamer that's kind of his that's his pecking the liver out moment that's his punishment and at the end, when you see something coming down to him, it is an eagle. The eagle is coming for him. And people interpreted that as meaning it's. Him. Right. Or is it is it the eagle coming to peck out his liver, i.e. he's going to die because he's pushed things too far and people have turned on him.
3: Yeah, that's very true. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's
4: interesting. I think an interesting point to, to maybe finish on and just to p- kind of put it back to what we speak at the very beginning with the context of when it came out, sort of. And with all these other films, is another film that has received a lot of criticism for its orientalism, for its racism against people in the Middle East. Is is three hundred because of the just the absurd, you know, caricature of what the Persians are like. They're kind of uber effeminate, just like degenerate, you know, dangerous other. And that really is kind of coming into a lot of this, I guess, anxiety and fear that around sort of people from the Middle East that was going around in the mid-noughties, you know, and the terrible racism that. People from the Middle East suffered as as a result, and when you look at Alexander and its its treatment of the Persians, it's it's not nice at all. You know the the first, uh, you know, when, as soon as he it comes into Babylon, I think you have them going into the harem and all the kind of giggling exotic women that look like they're you know parodies out of a pantomime. Um, and you know the way that the king Darius the third is not given any speaking lines; he's just kind of there, and then he runs away and the reaction of of his macedonian men as well because one of the sort of great talking points of alexander's career and his his reign is is his adoption of some persian cul- culture and customs you know he invaded persia but there were points in his campaigns where he was taking on persian dress he was training up persian soldiers he married persian women and that was a point of criticism historically but in the film it it takes on a whole a whole another element where um the scene with with Clytus the you know his friend who is the most vocal critic of him and who he eventually you know stabs and murders in this drunken rage you know at some point he's yelling at Alexander that he's not going to wear persian clothes he'd rather die than wear you know these things and it's interesting that as alexander goes through this period of he does degenerate as the film goes on you know he loses his friends he becomes more paranoid he has more emotional breakdowns he becomes more and more visually other, more and more visually Persian. If you notice, his hair gets longer. He wears robes. You know, he's sitting there at one point in this golden robe, just chest out, just lounging. He's, you know, he wears more eyeliner. So as time goes on, he's getting more and more Persianized according to as, you know, the film is depicting Persians. And a scene that really sticks in my mind that I sort of think encapsulates a lot of the problems of Oliver Stone's film It's in the longer version, it's in the three and a half hour version, because the the eunuch Bagoas was completely cut out of the original theatrical release, if I remember rightly. He sort of appears flash and you'll miss it once. But in the longer version, he has a much more prominent role, because he's this other homoerotic relationship that Alexander has. You have the Greek Visgen, and then you have the Persian eunuch Bagoas. And I think Oliver Stone has unintentionally written quite a homoerotic figure between the two of them. Because... The harem scene that I mentioned where him and his men first invade Babylon and they seal the king's riches. Among them are all the women of his harem. Alexander completely ignores all the women. He literally walks straight past them and makes a beeline to the only eunuch, the only man, male, in the room and starts off this conversation, this relationship with him. And there's a scene where Alexander has experienced this conspiracy amongst his own men. His own men have allegedly plotted to kill him. And among them is one of his oldest generals, Parmenion. And the scenes are intercut with he sent assassins to get rid of Parmenion. And as he's doing that, he's engaging in this this sex scene. He's engaging in intercourse with the eunuch um, Bagoas so as he's killing off the old Macedonians his oldest friends he's literally jumping into bed with the Persians who would be the enemies and it's quite it tells quite a disturbing story I think that as Alexander is sort of not losing his faculties per se but as he becomes more reliant on drink as he becomes more reliant on luxuries and lavishness that sort of corresponds with his sort of mental degeneration so we're getting the Persians are being associated with this degeneration whereas the good Macedonians who are you know wearing their armor they're manly they're not wearing the eyeliner they've not been taken in by Persian dress are getting killed off and it's quite an interesting aspect of the film that is that leaves me feeling a bit uncomfortable but I think it's a very interesting thing and I wonder if the film was made today would those scenes have played out quite the same way that they did or is it because it's a product of the mid noughties And I'm not quite sure I have an answer for it, but it's certainly something that I've been thinking about since watching it again and sort of noticing how these cuts are put together very deliberately. You know, the scenes where he's killing off the Greeks or the scenes he's jumping into bed with the Persians, quite literally, and that seems to contribute to his downfall. So I I wonder what Oliver Stone's trying to say there. I don't know, but I don't think it was a good thing.
3: Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean... It, uh, yeah, it all is from the time too. I mean, I don't know how much better things are now, but but they certainly weren't good back then, especially because of the war and you know, like how it started. but then also just as it went on, like everything was just so dark when it came to Americanized interpretations of of that part of the world. And so I definitely think I definitely think it's a commentary being made, and you know, not a good one that that, like you say, it's so obvious the way that they're portraying the differences between between his Greeks and his Persians I think it's very interesting to look at Alexander in this way because it I don't know it's it's just a fascinating way to look at him historically while also looking at this movie because I think it's a, a, a really easy but also particularly interesting way of learning about him in relation to this movie for it's good and it's bad So thank you so much for for giving me such a rundown on so much I didn't know about Alexander the Great and also this movie, which I truly, I don't know what I remembered it as, but I I hadn't watched it since it came out. And then so watching it again was was quite the experience, given I have seen Troy and 300 and and all those other ones so many times, I hadn't seen Alexander more than once, and But it was particularly interesting watching it again in this context of of learning about the actual person, but also with everything that I know now, since obviously I hadn't done my degree or anything by the when I watched it first. Um, So it's a very different experience now.
4: It's a good film in the sense that it takes you to places and makes you feel things. But it's also a frustrating film because, I mean, you're always going to be fighting a losing battle when you try and adapt Alexander the Great because there's so many conflicting aspects to his character and you're always going to have to make a decision to cut out some of the material somewhere. I think what what I took from the film is that it is fascinating in the things that it does I think I can find so many it's definitely not it's a film that doesn't lack detail it's just whether those details are going in the right direction you know I think you know it left me thinking all sorts of things and I was making like notes and writing like 500 words on a ring and I thought oh my gosh where am I getting all this from (laughs) but it's it's so it's got so many things I think what some of the merits of it is that you can sort of it sends you down a lot of different rabbit holes I think It's a flawed film in the sense that it doesn't give you a coherent picture because you don't know how you're supposed to feel starting and finishing. It starts with this massive battle where the stakes are so huge and you're like, wait a minute, I don't even know what they're fighting for. I don't even know what the purpose of this is. And then it finishes with his death, obviously, And this kind of very shocking little ending scene with Ptolemy kind of making this grand statement of, oh, you know, we killed him because he got too big for his boots and he reached too far. It's almost an Icarus moment, but God forbid they put any more mythology in it. My goodness. (laughs) You're kind of left not knowing how to feel. You're kind of like, well, what is the lesson that I have learned? Have I learned not to overreach myself because that comes at the cost of my own humanity? Well, not really, because because Colin Farrell's Alexander had no regrets by the end of it have i have i learned you know the the problems of hubris i don't know I'm, I'm not i'm not sure what i've learned so i think that's maybe the drawback of the film but it certainly gives me plenty of ideas for how to do a film about alexander and and do it better i'd love to you know direct or write or do something my own version of alexander and i'd love to bring colin farrell back as philip ii i think that would just be <laughs> perfect <laughs> I think he's at the right stage of his career now. He could he could be a brilliant foot at the 2nd There That'd be a nice little nice little Easter egg. But I think it is a great experience to watch. I think because visually it is it is stunning visually. I mean the scene where he enters Babylon mm-hmm. with all the rose petals, it's it's fabulous. But it is a bit of an arduous um, <laughs> an arduous undertaking. But then I wouldn't expect anything less from Alexander the Great. It's very true.
3: Very very well summed up and perfect for for that man that character (laughs) well thank you so much for for doing this um for for talking to me about all of this uh you're definitely the most well-versed on alexander the Great that i have that i've come across in my twitter time and in just doing this podcast in general so i very much appreciate you telling me all
4: about him thank you so much for listening finally somebody who wants to talk about the film with me
3: Oh, nerds, thank you all so much for listening to that. I had such a fun conversation with Meg. Um, You can find her Twitter handle in the uh, episode description for this. She is a wonderful follow on Twitter. That's how I met her and how this all came to be. I hope you all had an amazing holiday season. I hope you've all enjoyed this episode, this last of 2020. A perfect way to cap it off. I think we can all be glad this year is ending. With any luck, 2021 is going to be a better one. Happy New Year. I am Liv, and oh, how I love this shit.
0: When it comes to financial advice, you gotta trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. If you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products, If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.
2: Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.